from 11FS. This is Fintech Insider News, and I'm your host, Benjamin Ensor. Thank you for downloading this podcast. We aim to spice up your commute, 10K run, dog walk, work assignment, or whatever you're doing while listening to this podcast. This week, we're talking about banks heading into an AI talent war. And we talked about the large number of positions that banks are currently advertising in artificial intelligence, and whether that reflects banks trying to amass the skills and the talent to build their own AI instead of relying entirely on chat GPT, or whether it is perhaps a reflection of the AI jobs bloodbath that the media like to talk about. Then we talked about Majority Bank opening a community meeting space in Laredo, Texas for new migrants. And Jonas was telling us about why they've chosen Laredo, which is one of the biggest border towns uh, in Texas uh, on the Mexican border, and about all of the things that um, Majority is doing to try to help migrants establish their new lives in the United States. And we talked about whether Generation Z need lessons on how to behave in the corporate world. Uh, does the generation of workers who've come through the pandemic and are coming into their first jobs now need a little bit of help just understanding how to operate in an office? Or does the office need to adjust to them? And so we get into all of that and much more on today's show. So let's get to it. But first, a few brief messages back shortly. 11FS has been voted Consultancy of the Year at the British Bank Awards for a fourth time. We are super excited about bringing home the trophy, and it means more knowing that it is our clients that are the ones who voted for us. Digital financial services may only be 1% finished, but we're working with banks, fintechs, and everybody in between to chip away at the 99% still to go. And moments like this really tell us that we're on the right track. If you want to work with an award-winning team to build game-changing propositions, then let's chat. 11FS Ventures is home to industry experts across embedded finance, customer experience, digital strategy, bank building, and so much more. Kickstart your next project today and visit 11FS.com forward slash ventures. That's 11FS.com forward slash ventures. Hello and welcome, LFG people, to Fintech Insider, Blockchain Insider, 11FS Spotlight, 11FS Explores, Open Mic Night, After Dark. Through our podcasts, videos, newsletters, and live events, we have a direct line to a truly global fintech community. So if you're looking to sponsor and collaborate on content that connects with everybody from fintech beginners to the biggest VCs, then chat to our team at sponsors at 11fs.com or visit 11fs.com to find out more. Long live the community. Hello and welcome to episode 753 of Fintech Insider. I'm Benjamin Ensor, Director of Research and Strategy at 11FS. I'm joined this week on Fintech Insider News by three great guests who are going to help me break down the week's biggest stories in fintech and financial services. Firstly, it's my 11FS colleague, Ross Gallagher, Ventures Lead at 11FS. Hello, Ross. Hello, Benjamin. Hello. Have you been working on anything exciting in the past, past week or two that you can share a little bit of detail about? Oh yeah, gosh, where to start? Like we're working on uh, lots of really, really interesting stuff. Everything from sort of reimagining how personal finances are structured through to designing brand new digital banking propositions sort of in markets all around the world. So yeah, lots of fun, lots of interesting stuff. 
Fantastic. Up next, we have a debut on Fintech Insider for Nadia Edwards-Dashti, Chief Customer Officer of Harrington Star. Welcome to the show. What should our listeners know about you and about Harrington Star? Well, firstly, thank you so much. I'm super excited about the conversation we'll have today. Um, I've worked in recruitment for nearly 20 years. Uh, Harrington Star, we are a recruitment agency and we we place tech and salespeople into fintech and FS and we've been doing so since 2010. Uh, you may have seen us uh, reach 300 episodes on my podcast series, um, the DEI Discussions, where we talk about people and talent and being inclusive within this industry. Um, also, we have our own video channel celebrating the best of fintech, which we call Fintech Focus TV. So we're all about identifying niche skills, advocating for the overlooked and investing in talent. So excited about today's conversation. Fantastic. Welcome. And finally, we have a Fintech Insider debut for Jonas Lornel, Commercial Director of Majority. Thank you so much for joining us, Jonas. Can you give our listeners uh, an introduction to you and to Majority, please? Absolutely. And thank you so much for having me. So first of all, Majority is a digital bank and more for the unbanked uh, migrants in the US. So we're basically providing a banking service without uh, acquiring a social security number and then international services such as money remittances, international calling, car top-ups and so forth for the biggest migrant communities in the US. Uh, And what we're doing, hopefully I can get into it a little bit more later, but we're bundling all the services into a subscription uh, basically where we are then offering these banking services and remittances fee-free and then for heavily discounted uh, international callings uh, included. And what I do is that I'm responsible for our go-to-market efforts. So everything from uh, new markets expansion to customer acquisition, where I lead our sales operations and grassroots marketing initiatives. Fantastic. Okay, well, thank you all for joining me. And with that, let's get into the news. So our first story comes from Altfi, and it is that European banks are putting AI in 30% of their job ads. AI-related hires currently account for over 30% of the open job ads at some of the largest European banks. According to the AI Talent Report for Banks by Evident, this includes ING Group, Barclays and NatWest. According to Evident, the research company, there's already a talent war raging among the world's largest banks. JP Morgan Chase was the largest recruiter of AI-related roles between February and April 2023, advertising for 3,651 roles, compared with just 960 by Barclays. Across the 60 largest North American and European banks that were included in the research, around 46,000 roles were identified in the fields of AI development, data engineering, governance and ethics. Nadja, it's great to have you here to discuss this. How much is artificial intelligence shaking up the hiring market? It's an exciting topic, right? Um, And there's so much hype around it right now. But actually, it's not that new. You know, we've been talking about data, AI, machine learning for for quite a while. And when we actually look at Harrington Star, we we made a specific data AI desk 18 months ago. We don't just do that on a whim. We do that on demand, on demand that people are, are hiring and there's vacancies out there. I think the hype right now is a lot to do with uh, ChatGPT. It's a lot to do with some of the big headlines that we're seeing. But it has been there for a while. And actually, I think it's the theme of the industry. We're constantly looking to get better. We're constantly looking to automate things that we can do. Change is is something that is prevalent um, in who we are as in financial services and fintech. So 
you know, how much is it shaking up the market? It's shaking up a market that loves to be shook up. You know, <laughs> um, it's, it, it's, it happens all the time. And, and actually, when we think about fintech and, and financial services, are we actually as bleeding edge as we'd like to be? Probably not. And actually, you know, regulation holds us back in one way, but gives us loads of opportunities in another. I think what is exciting is that we have seen an increase over a large amount of time of new and different jobs that we'd never heard about before. The media will always bring negative connotations to who's losing jobs. But there's a lot that we can say about investing in people and helping them learn new skills, the new skills that we never even thought existed. That's a really, really interesting point you're making there. Is, is this impact around uh, of jobs around companies looking for people with AI expertise or are we seeing a shift in the market because actually a lot of the other jobs are going away because of artificial intelligence? What's happening here? Is this banks hiring talent to help them develop AI or is it that kind of the other roles are going away? Yeah, and I <laughs> promise I'm not sitting on the fence when I say it. It's not as straightforward as that because, of course, on the one hand, AI is going to automate parts of data analysis and review. But on the other hand, AI is still only approximately right. So, you know, when we think about gaining efficiencies, we have to consider accuracy. So there's a hell of a lot to consider here. And that will ultimately mean more jobs and more time to do the appropriate and proper analysis to be able to get the, the information and, and decisions out of that information. However, um, the less jobs that we've seen over the course of the past six months, nine months um, across the whole industry, it's been down to many factors. And I think when we tie it only to AI, it kind of adds to a hysteria. But we've got headlines out there. So we all have all seen the BT uh, headline, which was really, really, really brutal. 55,000 employees are going to be replaced in the next few years um, with AI. And, you know, you see the headlines, they, they will be replaced with AI. There isn't a conversation around, well, what's going to happen to these people? Are they going to be upskilled? Will they be taken along different career paths? Who's going to snap them up and utilize their transferable skills, probably with AI, um, to, to allow for them to become our next skilled, um, highly skilled workforce? I think um, the media often makes it sound like you know people are going to be turfed onto the street and left uh, jobless and then homeless um and i think that the things that we must consider are around how how we can actually support individuals within their careers but also listen to our customers yeah and let's be for real the bt um headline when were any of us happy with an automated service when we called up our customer service? So, you know, we've seen it how many times over the years, you know, things have been outsourced, then insourced, then offshored, then onshored. So, you know, when I think about the whole of their customer services team, you know, losing their jobs, I think it's, um, it's a bold move and I, and, I'm, and I don't have much confidence in that. Um, what I do have confidence in is that the people that are losing those particular jobs will be highly skilled people that can move into other jobs. And if we go all the way back to the beginning of my career in recruitment, I used to place, and this will show my age, I used to place people who coded in VB6. And when Microsoft switched off VB6, those people weren't out of jobs. They migrated their coding skills over to the new .NET or the VB.NET, as it was called at the time. They were able to build on things. And so, again, I think this is, this is something we need to look at. How do we upskill the talent we have? 
Ross, I'd love to, to, to bring you in at this point. Actually, just before I do that, just for international listeners, BT is the former British Telecom, is a large UK telecoms provider that, as Nadia quite rightly said, laid off a lot of people and, and blamed uh, blamed AI for that. Um, Ross, Nadia, one of the many interesting points Nadia made there was about whether financial services should be at the bleeding edge of AI. Um, do we want to see the financial services industry at the bleeding edge of AI or or not? Um, how how crucial do you think AI is to, to the industry and how far ahead of the curve do you think financial services firms should be trying to be? Yeah, it's such a good question. It's such a good question. And I guess it all comes down to how the technology gets applied, right? Because at the end of the day, we're talking about a technology. I mean, yes, there's intense competition right now amongst like leading global brands, you know, within and outside of financial services. I think there's also huge competition um, sort of internationally at a governmental level, right? Like if we look at the UK, there was a lot of talk from Rishi Sunak at London Tech Week last week, you know, about making the UK the sort of leading hub for technologies such as AI. And all of that, I guess, shows how bullish the market is right now, right, on the potential impact that AI and other emerging um, technologies can have. But I guess what I'd be more interested to understand is where do these brands see this potential impact, right? How does that sort of feed through to a better experience for end users, for customers? I mean, as an industry in financial services, we've gotten it wrong plenty of times before, right? And how we've applied new technologies, thinking about Things like digital is like a cost-cutting exercise rather than actually reimagining services for customers. So I'm I'm skeptical around whether or not as an industry we'll learn from those mistakes. And I'd also question, you know, there has been a lot of noise about AI becoming sort of the buzzword of 2023, right? So I'd question how much of this is actually reactive to the sort of latest hot trend and how much is part of a more, I guess, considered or coherent strategy, right? Indeed. Jonas, I'd love to bring you into this conversation as well. Um, one of the interesting things that struck me about this story was um, that one of the biggest companies, or some of the biggest companies hiring AI roles are companies that have been banning chat GPT, um, you know, banning their own employees from sort of using chat GPT. Um, is, that, is that surprising? Do you, do you have a sense of what's going on there? You've got companies on the one hand stopping their employees using it, and on the other hand trying to seek employees with those skills. Yeah, I, I actually am surprised. Uh, if you take uh, our company as an example, uh, everyone in our company, like not depending on if you're in tech or commercial, we all have uh, ChatGPT, and the company is paying for it. So I'm actually a little bit surprised. I, I think it's uh, a little bit of an old school approach. Uh, I think it's, um, I think it's inevitable that we will use AI, and I think it's actually better that people get up to speed and, and learn how to use it. Is it um, is it changing your business? As you, you talked about some of your colleagues using ChatGPT, is it are you finding there are some really good uses for it in the business? Is it helping people accelerate certain tasks? Yeah, we already started to do some uh, optimizations in in customer service, as well as also like in our uh, when it comes to improved fraud protection and detection. Uh, we've been working with machine learning there for a while, but also now implementing more uh, more AI into it. So we're already doing it. So from like a product and service perspective, uh, we're already doing some stuff. And then I think then it's more on the day-to-day general tasks uh, when it comes to, I mean, I was writing an, an ad the other day for a new position uh, in my team. And I I just wrote a very, like, pretty good prompt to ChatGPT and I got a good result uh, of a job ad. 
Uh, I don't know, Nadia, if you're doing this as well, because it's this your profession. Uh, and then I just made some tweaks myself, and then I had HR posting it, and it, it saved me a lot of time. So this is one of many examples where I where I use it myself. Yeah, Nadia, I'd, got, I'd love to throw you another question as well, just a, a quick one, because we're getting up to the end of the story. But um, we, we know there's a lot of sort of unintentional and unintentional bias in recruiting. And you talked about diversity and inclusion, you know, and you talked about how you're passionate about that. Is our AI helping with, does it help to increase diversity and inclusion in hiring or is it not helping? So two questions for you there, one from me and one from Jonas. Yeah, so I've got a lot of concerns about this. Um, so if you were to look at you know, the top 10 AI tools for recruitment, they will all have some sort of byline that, that you know, tips their cap to, you know, we care about um, eradicating bias in the application process. But, you know, tips their cap is kind of, you know, as far as it, as far as it goes, because this is a genuine concern. And I think actually, the work that I do in the industry we can't oversimplify what bias actually is in any application process. It is multi, it's systemic, it's got multiple mm. layers to it. And I think what often companies do and what individuals do when they're hiring and when they're considering bias in the hiring process is they say things like, okay, let's, um, let's not see whether it's a male or female applicant. Let's not see the, um, the ethnic uh, demographic of the person who applied as if that will make a difference to everybody who's involved in the process, their, their belief in the person and their educational background or lack thereof. It's oversimplification. And actually, it's assuming that we've got people who are, who are openly racist or sexist within the process. And actually, the bias is so much more complex than that. So unless we have got people who have had years of lived experience of this bias and true experts in diversity, equity and inclusion, people who have been champions and have been actively pushing forward parity in workplaces for years, unless we've got them involved in the AI, in AI tools in the hiring process, I don't see how we're going to ever put forward that any of these tools are, are a solution to it. Um, in fact, I think it's just automating the human problems that we have in the process already that I work very hard to eradicate. Mm. Thank you. Very well said, and um, I imagine very thought-provoking for, for many of our listeners. Inclusion is actually a great link into our next story um, uh, about uh, majority. So this was reported in many places, including TechCrunch, uh, which is that majority, a digital bank for US migrants, has grabbed 9.75 million US dollars amid expansion in Texas. So a mobile banking company offering financial services to US migrants has closed its fourth funding round in two years and has opened a community meetup space in Laredo, Texas. For a $5.99 per month membership fee, Majority, founded in 2019, offers migrants a bank account and debit card, community discounts, free international money transfer, and discounted international calling. Accounts don't require a social security number or U.S. documentation, just an international government-issued ID and proof of U.S. residence, and don't have overdraft fees or minimum balance requirements. There is also access to Majority's advisor program, a network of more than 250 trained support staff nationwide who are immigrants themselves. The 9.7 million in new capital is an extension to Majority's 37.5 million dollar Series B announced last September. Jonas, thank you so much for 
joining us. Firstly, congratulations on on the raise. Um, tell us a little bit about how Majority sort of came together a, a, as a business and what some of the issues you're trying to help new migrants overcome, please. Absolutely, uh, and thank you. So basically, the idea came from the the founding team of Majority, who had been working with immigrant and international target groups for many years, but mainly in the telecom space. But we, over the years, like realized that the biggest need for immigrants coming to new country is not only uh, in, uh, calling needs, it's also mainly financial needs. And if you see it from like a problem perspective, what we're trying to solve, and if we actually take, you can take myself as an example. Um, I'm from Sweden. I migrated to US four years ago. I speak fairly good English. I had a job when I moved there. Uh, but even for me, it was a little bit of a hassle to understand the financial system in the US. Like, what papers do I need? Um, this thing with credit score that everyone in the US is talking about, what is that? I was grown up in Sweden and my parents teach me, if you have money on your account, don't get a credit card, like use the money you have. Whereas in the US, for our European listeners uh, and elsewhere, you actually need to have a credit score. You need to get a credit card fairly quick in the US to be able to build a credit score that then in the future will uh, give you the ability to get a mortgage or a loan. So, and that is for me. And then you take another example and looking at com- uh, most people then coming to the US from maybe, you know, uh, Hispanic countries or African countries. And in many cases, you don't, you don't speak the language or you have a limited English, right? Uh, you don't have a steady income. So you start with scratch. And then the first thing you need to do is to go into one of the incumbent banks that might not even speak your language. If you don't have a social security yet, they won't even be able to give you a bank account. If they do, you're still going to have to maybe pay for actually just having a checking account or a saving account if you can't provide a steady income, right? But very often these people are also pushed out in the quote-unquote offline jungle, uh, basically going to the small kiosks and stores on the corner uh, cashing your check, uh, sending money back home for extremely high and predatory fees. So these are the things. And also I should add to that, uh, also very common is that many of these people are not even banked in the country that they're migrating from. You take Mexico as an example, almost half of the population are not even banked uh, in the country because they lack uh, trust for the systems, right? So you have all these problems and, and this is what we're trying to, to solve. So. As we discussed and as you laid out, we are doing this by providing this product uh, with uh, banking and international services, uh, as we laid out. But more than that, uh, we're also putting a lot of emphasis in how we are uh, communicating with our customers, how we are onboarding them and how we are serving them. Uh, because the trust is, is, is the absolute most key part for us to be able to do what we're doing. And, and uh, that's why we have a very sort of localized and grassroots community close uh, go-to-market model. Well, wait, I was going to ask you that. What's the sort of purpose of the, of the sort of community um, meetup space in, in Texas? Can you tell us a little bit more about how that sort of fits into the strategy? Is it, is it the start of a branch network? What, what's your thinking there? Yeah, sure. Uh, so before answering that, like a little bit more about then how we, uh, how we go to market, uh, basically, is that. And one of the reasons why we have been successful Whereas some of our competition has been struggling a little bit in the space is that even though we are a digital bank uh, with a you know state-of-the-art digital product, fintech, neobank, whatever you want to call it, we have a pretty conventional or traditional go-to-market model in its core. Uh, it basically starts with 
being extremely close to the communities from a marketing perspective, taking part of various Colombian, Venezuelan, Cuban, uh, Mexican uh, events and activations. But then, as also you mentioned here before, we have our uh, network of around 250 majority contracted sales advisors that basically are working outside partner locations. We have everything from Hispanic supermarkets, but we also work directly with the uh, Colombian and Mexican uh, consulate uh, and other types of places where uh, migrants tend to arrive when they get here. So we're basically meeting them where they are with the sales advisor, uh, you know, uh, educating them about the, the US system, about our product, onboarding them. And then also we have service agents speaking the same language. But then and as an addition to this, we then have this meetup spaces. And we are then building these meetup spaces in focal points or communities. So for instance, we have one here outside Miami in Hialeah. Hialeah is the biggest Spanish-speaking community in the US with 90% uh, Hispanic-speaking people. Uh, so we have a meetup space there where both you can come to sign up as a customer if you don't want to do it uh, by yourself organically online, or if you haven't met one of our advisors, you can go there. But also if you're an existing member of us, you can come there and get help from the customer service agents. You can come and utilize it as a co-working space, get free coffee. And again, it's all about trust. Actually, when we are selling our product, some of the one of the most common questions we get on the streets is like, do you have a bank office? Do you have a space I can go to? And the answer is yes, and we can actually show on Google Maps, but many of our customers actually never go there, but just uh, the, the knowledge of us ha having that is it's, uh, it's key. Ross, what do you think of this news from Majority and, and this strategy? How much difference do you think this kind of proposition makes to, to people moving to a, to a new country? Well, it's so interesting. There's so much about this that I absolutely love. I think it makes a huge difference for the communities. Um, I mean, when you think about the fact that even advisors are migrants, right? So it's not just about serving um, the people within those communities and bringing them into formal financial services. You're also creating jobs within the communities that you serve, which I think is just exceptional. Um, Jonas, as well, like you mentioned the sort of predatory fees that the that people like this are often subjected to when they try and um, send money home and all of that sort of stuff. And that's absolutely an issue. I think something that we've seen here in the UK as well is that when vulnerable communities are excluded from formal financial services, it puts them at huge risk of being exploited, right? Just through sheer desperation and this sort of like organized crime gangs and all of that sort of stuff, right? So beyond necessarily as well, just the impact on those communities. I think that has a huge um, societal impact, right? You know, you, you, you're bringing people into formal financial services, you're empowering them, you're helping them to play a more active role in society, which I think is amazing. I mean, look, really, it's such a catch-22 that we all know about. If you don't have a bank account, you can't get a property, but you need proof of address to get a bank account. And that's, you honest, to your point before you even start to think about more complicated things like credit scores and uh, and all of that sort of thing. I think the other thing that really stands out for me is... The this is clearly a very like user focused proposition. You know, you get all the standard things and account a debit card, but I think the international money transfers um, that are fee free, the discounted international calls, it's clearly super tailored to the user base. So congratulations, I think it's great. Yeah, it's, it's great stuff, uh, Nadia. I'd, I'd love to bring you in on this. I, I don't know what your, your thoughts are, and also I'd be interested in your perspective on 
how many of your the positions that you fill are, are people who are themselves migrants into the into the UK or into to other markets. Obviously, that's slightly different end of the market to to some of the people that Ross was just talking about. But but do you come across a lot of people having challenges as they move from one country to another for work? Mm, absolutely, and I I love everything about what Jonas has been saying, and it's just credit to you know a, a wonderful uh, company and mission um, and I think this is just so needed right now because it's one thing Rishi Sunak being at UK Tech Week saying you know we want to hold the fintech crown of the world but you know we've got to make sure that we are supporting people so that they want to come here and they want to work here and they'll be supported in doing so and supported across every avenue so I've been at a number of events recently, and one of them was Fintech Fringe, and we had some some great support structures talking. And when I say support structures, we had the Centre of Finance, Innovation and Technology, Innovate Finance, uh, Rise Created by Barclays, the Department of Business and Trade, all talking to Fintech scale-ups about how they can land in the UK and how they can grow. And I was thinking, well, we need... We need more for the individuals because they can't land and grow if we're not if we're not supporting people to land and grow as well. And one of the quotes of the day, which I furiously wrote down in my notes, was um, was that someone said the secret success of London is that it hosts an influx of talent from across the world, which I thought was a great a great quote. But we need HR and legal support. We need better visa processes. And even though this year there was a fintech visa brought in. You know, word on the street, you know, when, when it actually comes to is this being taken up, it's a two-year visa, which leads to a fee at the end of those two years. So if any scaling fintech just takes on, let's say, 20 people um, by, by the end of two years, that's a hell of a lot of a cost that by nature of their growth, they, they're afraid to take on. And these are the, the real ins and outs of, of what's going on at the moment. We have all the best intentions, yep. but the stuff that Jonas and his team are doing is what we need more of because it turns best intentions into reality. Fantastic. Let's, go, let's end this on, on majority because I completely agree with you, Nadia. Um, Jonas, what, what's, what's next for, for majority? What, what else are you going to do um, with, with the fundraising? Yeah, so... The next step for us now is that we're opening this meetup space and the new one down in Laredo. And and um, for for the US listener, for the UK listener or European listener, Laredo is the second biggest uh, border city in the US. So it's just by uh, the border to Mexico. Uh, it's the second biggest after El Paso. So we have around um, one thousand five hundred uh, migrants on a daily basis passing through there. So we are basically basing our new meetup space. The first building you see when you come into the US, and then we're going <laughs> to uh, receive people. And and this is then in combination with um, us now starting focusing on the huge Mexican market in the US. Before it's been mainly focused on Cuba, Colombia, Venezuela, and now we are entering the biggest of them all, which is Mexico. And and uh, we're starting with uh, focusing on Laredo and also in Houston, in Texas. Well, fantastic. We wish you every success, um, a very um, much needed business. So best of luck to, to you and your colleagues. All right, we're just going to take a quick pause here and we will be back very shortly.
A lot of you know 11FS for our chart-topping podcasts, our events, videos, reports, and a bunch of other cool stuff that we do. But what a lot of you don't know is that this is just all our side hustle. We do so much more than that. At 11FS Ventures, we're partnering with ambitious businesses around the world to design, build, and launch truly digital financial services. We are building banks, shaping new propositions, and growing existing offerings that change the fabric of financial services. And our design, research, strategy and engineering experts are working to improve your customer's relationship with money. To find out a little bit more, check us out at 11fs.com forward slash ventures. Okay, welcome back. And um, before we get into the second half of today's news, a quick note to go check out the latest episode of our FinTech Insider Insight show. In this week's deep dive, we're asking how does big tech shake up the payments industry? Apple, Google, Amazon, Facebook can shake up the payments with one new product announcement or feature. But they often need payments providers to make it all work. So who holds the power in the relationship? David Breer is joined by guests from Thread, ClearBank, and MasterCard to thrash it out. Go and check out that podcast out wherever you got this one. Okay, let's get back into the news, which is from the papers, which reports that Revolut is to launch Ultra, a new subscription plan. Revolut, the UK digital bank or UK-based digital bank, has announced it is set to launch a new top-tier premium subscription plan dubbed Ultra. Ultra does not come cheap with annual UK fee of £540. But according to Revolut, the range of lifestyle and travel benefits on offer to cardholders are worth up to £4,100. The Platinum Card benefits include subscriptions with Ultra partners, including the Financial Times, NordVPN, WeWork and ClassPass. Revolut's goal is to boost both its card use and average assets transferred into clients' accounts, who have abandoned stock market or cryptocurrency investments since the market collapsed. So we put out a poll to you, our listeners, um, on the 11FS uh, LinkedIn channel, asking, is Revolut Ultra worth £540 a year? And with 470 votes, 23% of you said, yep, worth it. 62% said, not worth it. And 16% of you weren't sure and said, not sure. So where does our panel stand? Is it worth it? Ross, what do you reckon? I mean, I think it's targeting a pretty niche demographic, right? So I think the distribution on that poll is probably about right. I think I like the open-mindedness of the 16% that say they're not sure. So I'm going to join that camp. (laughs) <laughs> Jonas, what about you? Do you think there are people across across Europe who think paying £540, what's that, sort of 600, 650 euros, um, is, makes sense? Do you think, what do you, what do you reckon? I think so, actually. I, I think it's a pretty exciting product. But obviously, as Ross said, it's a niche product. So I'm not surprised about the poll results. But if, if you put this yearly cost in relation to Revolut's other products or other subscription models in fintech like ourselves or others, yes, it's expensive. But if you compare it with, you know, American Express Platinum cards, which is very popular here in the US or Citibank, American Airlines, uh, they cost around 500, 800 a year. And looking at what this actually includes, I definitely think there's a market for it, both within the early adopters of Revolut, who maybe has a little bit more like older millennials now have more money, but also obviously people have a big need for uh, the international service, um, the international travel and uh, and uh, trading services that is included. And what do you think, Nadia? I'm, I'm thinking some of your customers are probably pretty much the same target market. Uh, what, what do you think of this? 
Well, do you know what? It's like um, the ever elusive quest of what are the best um, uh, add-on benefits um, for somebody working in a company because a list like this does target a certain demographic, as Ross says. You know, if you're, you're interested in it, if you're interested in it, you know, and there's many things here that simply are not relevant to me. Um, Tinder, for example, sleep cycle. Well, I don't sleep. I've got two young children, so that's not going to help me at all. <laughs> you know? Um, so, you know, straight away, I'm excluded. Um, but, you know, there's, um, it's really interesting because I love, I love the concept of when people try this. Imagine if there were choices, right? Imagine if we all had, there were a number of different columns and you could make a few, you know, pick and choose. You'd have a much higher percentage of, I think this is worth it than what you have right now. Ross, who do you think? Uh, who do you think Revolut's after with this? Is is Nadia sort of right in? in, in I mean, who, who's this? Who's this aimed at? Yeah, I think I think Nadia's bang on with the um, maybe some of those um, maybe younger millennials that you know I think are probably quite a, a a lucrative demographic, right? I think especially Jonas called it as well with the early adopters in Revolut, people who've probably been. Um, you know, use their their crypto capabilities and all of that sort of stuff. I think as well, what stands out for me, right, is um, like digital nomads, right? People who will value access to things like WeWork and the financial time. So I think it makes sense as to why Revolut would be going after them. Um, for me, I think it's clearly a lifestyle product. That's how I reacted to this. I think people with a certain lifestyle they will be willing to pay for it and they will actually probably extract plenty of value from it. I think there is value to be had from it, although I agree with Nadia. I think you need to be intentional about how you use the various benefits to actually extract that value. I think the other thing that's worth considering, though, is the timing, right? Like we're in the middle of a serious squeeze, like a massive cost of living crisis, and I think that's had a big shift in behaviors just around spending. So I think a lifestyle account that sort of incentivizes spend, subscriptions, all of that sort of stuff. The timing for me is just an interesting one. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Jonas, do you think we have a sort of cultural or expectation divide between different countries, you know, between the United States, the UK, Sweden, different different countries in terms of people's willingness to pay sort of subscription fees on on, on banking products? Yeah, uh, I mean... From Sweden, like if you look in traditional banking, there is no fees. And then in the in the US, uh, there is more common with fees. I was alluding to it before uh, that, you know, everything from overdraft fees to non-sufficient funds fees and just like for having bank accounts, depending on how much you can deposit. So Americans are more used to it in that sense. If you look in our specific target group, the average fees you're paying as a, uh, as a customer is, is pretty high. Um, but then again, it's like when it comes to this particular example, I more put this product in the bucket of comparing it to this other more high level credit cards and the year subscriptions. And I think, again, like comparing it with some of the ones I mentioned before, I, I, I can definitely see a market for this. And, and to, to your point, Ross, I think you're right with the timing, but also look at uh, American Express who actually increased their prices uh, last year. Uh, so doesn't mean everyone can do it, but but they managed to find this niche target group, and and they are they're doing really well. No, I agree, and I think um, I think the big thing for me is value, and I think that is probably also at the root of 
the the difference in the UK and the US. Of course, the 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 the, the interchange rates in the UK and Europe is heavily mandated. There's a lot more flexibility um, in the US, and that obviously is a, a sort of revenue stream. I think means that those providers can generally tend to provide better benefits that are more enticing that people are more willing to pay for. Nadia, I loved your point about um, sleep cycle and, and Tinder being entirely irrelevant to you. Um, did you did you see anything in the sort of list of potential benefits that you think would have a, quite a wide appeal? Um, I think there's a number in there that would do. I mean, look, we, we work, for example. So, you know, we are now in, in a generation um, of hybrid working. And that opportunity for people doesn't mean that they want to... I heard this phrase just today, I don't want to be a prawn. And what, what he meant was he didn't want to be, you know, like in the shape of a prawn sitting on his sofa working, which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> but, you know, he doesn't want to be a prawn. He wants to have a proper desk to sit up to. So, you know, I can imagine that that, that would be something that people would be really interested in. But... I still feel when I look at this, these are a number of luxury items. And, you know, Ross is absolutely right. We're in, we're in a cost of living crisis here. So it is very specific to uh, pe- people who are not feeling the pinch. Um, but then, you know, as Jonas said, that that's probably who they're going for. And that's the business model. All right. Uh, Jonas, last question to you. Are we going to see a $700 majority ultra card on your on your roadmap anytime soon? Yeah, uh, I think we have a lot of interesting thing on our roadmap uh, to serve our, you know, the banking needs for our customers. And and, uh, that is probably not on the, you know, uh, it's not top 10 for sure. It would be a very, very niche product. So the answer is no. Even though we have <laughs> the possibility, actually, uh, with our vendors to have a platinum or metal card, but I don't think that's prioritized now. No. <laughs> well, let's move on then to our next story, which is a bit more of a, a sort of a, a mainstream story that affects far more people. So, um, we are, this story was in the BBC News. So, this is a UK story looking at mortgage rates, where the average two-year fixed mortgage is now above six percent. So, uh, a typical two-year fixed mortgage deal in the UK now has an interest rate of more than six percent um, for the first time since. Uh, December, mortgage lenders have been putting up rates and pulling deals at a rapid rate in the past few weeks, driving up costs for homeowners seeking new deals. High inflation, strong pay growth figures in the UK mean that interest rates are now expected to rise by more than expected, pushing up borrowing costs. Expectations that interest rates will stay higher for longer have been reflected in the funding cost of mortgages, hitting new borrowers and those trying to remortgage. Um, Ross, I think I'm going to pull you in first, given what you've already been talking about, the sort of cost of living and so on. Um, what can and should mortgage providers sort of offer to their customers at times like this? I mean, is it is it okay for mortgage providers just to push their rates up? No, not really. And it's such an awful time for people on variable rate mortgages or just coming out of a fixed term deal. I mean, it's a really difficult situation to be in. There are lots of calls Um from sort of opposition parties, from people like Martin Lewis um, and and others, right for for banks to do more to absorb some of the impact on on homeowners. It's it's really hard, obviously, to know what's going to come out of this. But look, it's not helpful. It's certainly not ideal when banks are pulling deals in anticipation of future rate rises. Like that's how bad the market is. God, they're not even waiting now for the the Bank of England to raise its rate. They're pushing up their prices in anticipation of those rates. So, 
you know, the really difficult thing about this, right, is obviously the government has said categorically that they're not going to intervene. They're not going to offer support to ease the rising cost of mortgages. The thing is, the the rising interest rates is being driven by efforts to drive down what is absolutely sky high inflation, right? And that is the a primary function of the Bank of England. And it's also a named priority for the current government. And the bit that they don't sort of often tell you is that rising interest rates and the fact that that pushes up the cost of your mortgage that's actually designed to leave people with less money right it reduces their spending power and it helps to cool the economy so there's a real tension there um, and the other really tricky element for me is inflation is actually proving a lot more stubborn um than many expected so it's really actually quite difficult to see um where these rate rises level off indeed Naja, how is this how is this feeding through into into sort of your part of the hiring market? Are you seeing um, people coming to you with higher salary expectations? Are you seeing employers having to uh, sort of increase their offers, or is, have you not seen a sort of notable effect? Yeah, so um, so the the higher salary expectations were last year, and that was because there was a demand for talent, and there was a huge talent shortage. And everybody who, who was hiring, because so many people were, and hiring in abundance, um, they'd, almost, um, they'd almost play a game and get into bidding wars with particular individuals and their skill sets. And that would drive the salaries up and up and up. And, you know, we would sit there as the recruiters thinking, well, this, isn't, this just isn't going to work long term because, <laughs> I mean, it's just not fair to your, your current people. Um, and, you know, we knew it would level out and it's leveled out this year and the the demands aren't, aren't as high um, because there aren't there aren't as much uh, as many people making the hires. So we're not getting into those bidding wars. The demand for talent isn't isn't quite there. So salaries are normalizing and companies have actually realized that by hiking up their salaries, they created more problems for themselves because it wasn't necessarily the right motivations for those individuals to join them. What we have seen are a number of fintechs and some financial services organizations gift uh, money to their staff. Um, So in a very similar way at the beginning of the pandemic, where some companies decided to uh, put 300, 500 pounds into every individual to have a desk set up at home, we've seen uh, 500 plus drop in people's accounts uh, to help them deal with the cost of living. It's been few and far between, but we have seen it. Um, and that's been a brilliant thing to see. But I think um, what really does matter right now for people um, is being able to be their best at work and not not feeling that at work they have to behave in a certain way or work with their arm behind their back. And what I mean by that is that what's really growing at the moment is the need for flexi time, the need for um, remote working, the need for being able to actually talk about their career progression. And very interestingly, Only two weeks ago at Money 2020, I ran a panel where we had a live poll to the audience. And one of the questions that we asked was, uh, what was the most important thing for you and your firm right now? And culture and opportunity in the word cloud came up top. Money was a teeny tiny little money sign um, in the corner of the page. Um, So I thought that was very interesting. Very interesting. Uh, Jonas, this um, rising inflation is obviously far from unique to the UK. Um, uh, how is it affecting your business and, and, and your customers? Are, are you feeling a lot of pain from rising inflation in the States? Or 
Yeah, definitely. If you're looking at uh, the increasing of uh, prices, like in everything, uh, everything from from food, like everyday goods, uh, gas. So our target group, obviously being mostly low, medium uh, income, they are heavily affected by it. Ross, I'm going to throw the last question to you. And this is a big question. Um, <laughs> what do you think financial services companies can do for their customers? I mean, I love Nadia's idea of, of, of employers giving their employees an extra £500 or $500. That's nice. That's expensive. <laughs> what do you think companies can do? Well, there is precedent. I think if you look at the, the sort of groceries um, and the supermarkets, you know, they've actually taken on a role which we maybe haven't appreciated them for in the past, which is actually absorbing um, some of those cost increases on the supply side and not necessarily passing them straight through onto consumers. Now, don't get me wrong, they've done a lot wrong as well, and they've been criticized that um, they they haven't dialed back the increases as wholesale costs have declined. But I think there is something that banks can do, which is actually absorb some of the um, the interest rate hikes and not pass them directly onto consumers. And as I said at the, uh, the, 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 the top, definitely not adding to the volatility in the market by pulling products before the rate rises have even been announced by the Bank of England to reprice those mortgages because that is just craziness. I think there's other things they can do, better tools to help consumers better manage their money, get better visibility on their finances, better control over their finances and improve their financial health and well-being over the longer term. But those are some of the things that they could probably do in the immediate term that will have the most impact. Indeed. Thank you. Okay, now we'll move to the section of the show called Big Click Energy, which is a quick-fire roundup of some more click-worthy news this week. Ross, what have you got for this this week? Yeah, so this one comes from the Business Magazine with a headline, Starling Bank renews sponsorship of Southampton FC women's football team. So Starling Bank has renewed its status as principal sponsor of Southampton FC women's football team. It became the principal partner for the club for the 22-23 season after a huge summer for England at the Women's Euros and for Starling as the official national banking partner. The bank has created 500 jobs at its Southampton base and launched a Coaches of Tomorrow programme to train up to 20 women from the area to be FA-accredited coaches. Starling also donated £28,000 to emerging players and grassroots football clubs across the UK last August, off the back of the England Lionesses winning performance. So I think this is great, both in terms of obviously helping to drive the growth in women's football, which we've seen um, just explode, but also I think investing in the local area, making a real difference through jobs and opportunities. I think things like this over time, this type of investment makes an enormous difference. And look, it's just nice to see a good news story. Indeed, love it. Okay, let's bring everybody back for the final section, looking at a more lighthearted story uh, from the past week, which we found in Business Insider, which reported that Gen Z, or Generation Z, is taking courses on how to send an email and what to wear in the office. Recent graduates who have taken virtual classes and worked remote internships might need to brush up on their soft skills, from how to write an email to elevated chit-chat and appropriate work attire. Some companies and universities have already begun offering training to help Generation Z employees adapt to the office, according to a new report from the Wall Street Journal. 
KPMG is offering new hires introductory training that includes how to talk to people in person with tips on the appropriate level of eye contact and pauses in a conversation. Thinks must remember to pause while talking. The company's vice chair of talent and culture, Sandy Torture, told the paper. The consulting company Protivity expanded its training for new hires during the pandemic to include a series of virtual meetings that focus on issues like how to make authentic conversation. And Scott Redfern, Protivity's executive vice president of global human resources, told the Wall Street Journal that the company has had to remind new hires to avoid casual attire like blue jeans with holes in them. Uh, (laughs) Where do we start? Nadia, um, do you think younger generations need to adapt to the office or does the office need to adapt to them? What do you, you must see some fun stories. Oh, yes. I mean, I have so many stories which I don't think are appropriate. Um, but I actually think it's a bit of both. I think, you know, the, the office definitely needs to adapt to them. But also I love I love this whole concept of, of training, training on something that we never thought you needed training on before. And it really lends to me um, inclusion and social mobility because so many individuals haven't sat at the Sunday lunch table with one of daddy's friends from the office since they were five years of age talking about finance or presenting themselves in a certain way. Many people haven't had that opportunity. Many people haven't gone and done a university degree where they've had to go through a number of interviews and impress on a on an academic level. Many people haven't had those opportunities. So how would they know that they need to not just ask about the weather or maybe just ask about the weather when they're you know, having their <laughs> elevated chit chat? You know, how, how would they know how to dress in an office? And I think the, the, more t- the more excuses we can make to not assume and to give people the options of learning and bettering themselves, this to me is, is fantastic. And I have, on a serious note, I have seen many things that I would say are injustices where, where young individuals have joined companies and they haven't made it on situations that were totally unfair and totally based on their their appearance, what they were wearing, or comments that they had said that no one had prepared them not to say, and they simply didn't know. So as much support as possible, I think it sets people up for success, and that's what I'm all about. Yeah, I I completely agree. I was also struck by the point about looking people in the eye because – you know, I, I sort of learned to sort of think about people looking at you in the eye. And then you learn that actually in some cultures that's considered rude and, and, and so on. You're, you're not supposed to look your elders in the eye. So there are things here that are easy for people to, to, to trip up on. Uh, Jonas, what, what did you think of this, this story? What do you think? Yeah, first of all, I, I really appreciate the, Nadia's perspective on this because she, she tackled it from another angle. And I think, yeah, from the inclusion perspective and, and uh, now I actually think it's great because my first impression when I read this was, when I heard about it was, I think it was like, oh, this typical Gen Z who just want to work from home. <laughs> and they are like, you know, they have a concentration span that is like a half second or they don't know how to. So I, I thought it was a little bit silly and I also thought it was comic that the the, uh, the classes were made virtually when it's about learning how to engage in the in the real world. But but again, another gave me another good perspective of it. Uh, but I do think um, when it comes to the entire question, I think it's what to wear at the office. I think that's a little bit depending on, uh, you know, the, the industry. Like uh, I usually wear a T-shirt and I, I have tattoos on my arms and uh, we are the most successful migrant fintech. So maybe that is actually a recipe for success rather. Um, joking, obviously. Um, 
I think that's my view on it. I think the work from home question is more interesting uh, where I see uh, when we go to job fairs and uh, talking to Gen Z, it's, it's very often the first question that I get, do you have a work from home policy? Uh, and that is not my favorite question uh, to get. I don't think that uh, in most industries, working 100% from home is good, especially when you're in a startup environment like we are. Uh, I think it's crucial that you're uh, working at the office uh, at least three times a week. Uh, and lastly, on that one, in, uh, from our perspective, we have people from 25 different countries uh, working at majority. So we also have language barriers and then you have people speaking English with a dialect like myself. So for us, it's even more important that we actually meet at the office and exchange ideas and, and work together. What do you think, Ross? Uh, do you need to be in offices periodically to learn learn some of these skills from others? I mean, it, it, uh, what do you think? As, as, as someone who works primarily remotely, I'm going to say emphatically no. Um, no, of course I'm joking. I think you do. Like, there's nothing better than when people come together. I think that's where um, that's where the magic happens. And look, I think, you know, for an organization like KPMG, primarily a client-facing organization, it's understandable that there will be an expectation that hires will subscribe to a certain standard. But I think Nadia's point about social mobility is so important, but equally from the organization's perspective, you know, they shouldn't, it's fine to have that standard, but they shouldn't be limiting themselves in terms of like, onboarding more creatives and all of that sort of stuff, right? Because I think the the um, the, the benefits there are, are, are sort of well known. So yeah, it's an interesting story. It really is. Thank you. Um, did any of the three of you make any huge mistakes in, in your first office job? Did you, did you wear the wrong thing, say the wrong thing, do the wrong thing? Anyone have an amusing story of some error they made in their youth? I'm sitting here trying to think about when I might have said the right thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 100%. Um, so I responded to an email on behalf of my boss when he was on holiday. And um, that email basically meant that an invoice would be sent later. And I didn't realise that that was a bad thing. Oops. Um, and when he came back and realised that invoice had therefore not been paid, I mean, I'm, I'm lucky I still was in the job, let's put it that way. <laughs> Oh dear. Jonas? Yeah, I mean, I did a lot of mistakes, obviously. I was uh, I was very ambitious and I didn't really understand the sort of different, you know, where, where, where to draw the line. And, and I was launching a new product. This was in my telecom days in Sweden. And uh, I thought that the, the brand and marketing team were a little bit slow. Uh, so I went by myself and created a radio jingle and bought media to sort of commu communicate this new this product without the marketing uh, team knowing it. So that became a little bit of a uh, internal crisis, but we... <laughs> I can imagine they weren't best yeah. pleased. <laughs> no. Wonderful. All right. Uh, unless you're going to sing the jingle to us, Jonas, I think we will... <laughs> I think we will wrap up the show. Um, so thank you all so much uh, for, for joining us today. Where can uh, people find out a little bit more about you and uh, what you're up to? Uh, Nadia, where can people find out a little bit more about you? Um, the best place to find me is LinkedIn. Um, please connect. I, I'd love to take any of these discussions further. Wonderful. And Jonas? Same here. You'll find me on LinkedIn, Jonas Lörnell, if you have a Swedish keyboard. Otherwise, Jonas Lörnell. And then, of course, check out our webpage, uh, majority.com. I kind of want a Swedish keyboard now, but I'm sure I just totally mistype everything. Ross? Yep, you can find me at Ross Gallagher 7 on Twitter. 
And as for me, Benjamin Ensor, you can find me on LinkedIn. So thank you all so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Um, please uh, do join in. Uh, send us an email at podcast at levelinvest.com or find us on social media. Thank you all so much and goodbye. <laughs>